0: Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to everyone in the Higher Branch community, wherever you may be. This week's podcast is super exciting. It was recorded live at the Upgrade Your Life event in 2020. And my guest is none other than Carl Honoré, the best-selling author, broadcaster, and TED speaker. And he absolutely rocked the room with this message at Upgrade Your Life, where he had everyone thinking and contemplating their future. Now, before I give you a summary of what he covered uh, at Upgrade Your Life. I wanna tell you a little bit about uh, who Carl is, just in case uh, you are new to our community. Now, before spearheading the slow movement, uh, Carl spent a decade working as a journalist Uh, He covered Europe and South America for The Economist, The Observer, Miami Herald, Houston Chronicle, Time Magazine, National Post, and numerous other publications. He was then named the godfather of the slow movement. Um, In his first book, uh, called In Praise of Slow, which is in the top 10 books of all time for myself personally, examines our compulsion to hurry and chronicles a global trend toward putting the brakes on. Now, Carl's latest book, which was a subject of this podcast, is called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives, is about aging, uh, which is how we can do it better and feel better about uh, doing it. It's also a cry against the last form of discrimination that dare speak its name, and that is ageism, uh, which is often forgotten as a form of discrimination and uh, the book has seen uh, a a sea of traction with companies like the BBC holding Global Summit for its staff to consider how aging should be dealt with in the corporate world. Uh, And in exploring the taboo of aging, Boulder is collaterally redefining the walls of corporate social responsibility. So the book was published in 34 languages, and they've landed on the bestseller lists in many of those countries. Uh, in Praise of Slow, which I mentioned earlier, was a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week and the inaugural choice of the Huffington Post Book Club. That's how powerful that first book was. And I think that that's what is going to happen with this latest book, Boulder. So in this podcast, Carl talks about how to grow bolder. Uh, so in an era where biohacking is now helping us live longer, our mindset to aging is just as critical, if not more so than, you know, what we eat. Uh, you know, how much exercise and how much sleep we get, we underestimate the impact that our mindset has on the way we grow older. So most of us think that it's in the foods we eat, but it's also your mindset. And what mindset do you have as you grow older? So Carl is hot off the stage at TED and At Upgrade Your Life, he took a deep dive into how we make the most of our longer lives and keep reinventing ourselves socially and professionally in all areas of of our life. Now, I don't believe that this talk is just limited to those people who are, you know, 40 plus or 50 plus. I think this is a must for all ages. A funny thing happened to me last week and I met with someone who was 24 years of age and I have a daughter who's 17 years of age. And something that uh, he said at the age of 24 was completely, completely different to the lens that my daughter, who's 17 years of age, uh, views the world. So, you know, seven years was not a long time if you're, you know, 40 or 50 years plus. But now seven years is almost generational. It's transformational. So I think what Carl has to share with us is completely universal it uh, crosses all age barriers and is a must for everyone. This talk absolutely uh, rocked my world. His book, Boulder, was another defining moment in my learning. So sit back and relax wherever you may be and enjoy the incredible talk by
1: Carl Honoré. Right. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the, the warm welcome. I, I love all of this. I love Sydney. I love this conference. I love Sam and his team. I I, I, it's a wonderful place to be, and then the skinny-dipping thing comes up again. I think that's going to follow me to my, to my grave. There may well be skinny-dipping tonight as well, and I, I remember yesterday, I, it turns out I'm accompanied this year by my alter-ego Carla, right? You remember that? So, so you may get you know, two for the price of one this evening. But, but I'm not here this morning to talk about uh, skinny-dipping, maybe, maybe next year. My theme this morning is aging. And I want to get the ball rolling by talking first about Tinder, whoops, and not because I think Tinder is the best way to age better or to make the most of our longer lives. It may well be for some people, but it won't be for everyone. Right? I know that, for instance, if I opened up a profile on Tinder and my wife got wind of it, my life would get a lot less happy and a lot less long very quickly. I want to talk about Tinder because it gives me an excuse to tell you the story of a man called Emil Rattleband. Now, the name may ring a bell, because about a year ago, Rattleband made headlines around the world when he marched into a courthouse in the Netherlands, he's Dutch, and he demanded the right to change his official birth date. He wanted to go from being 69 years old to 49 years old, on paper, at least. And when the judge said to him, Why? Why do you want to expunge, erase two decades of living from the record? Rattleband said, Well, Your Honor, it's actually pretty simple. If I'm able to identify as a 49-year-old, I'll live a better life. I'll be more successful at work and more successful on Tinder. Because on Tinder, if women think I'm only 49, they'll be more likely to swipe right and go on a date with me. Now, there are clearly two conclusions we can draw from the story of Mr. Rattleband. The first is, obviously, that this guy doesn't really understand how dating works, yeah? Can you imagine anything worse, a bigger turnoff? than arriving at a first date with somebody you've been flirting with online to discover they're 20 years older than advertised? Right? My guess is that even if he does score more Tinder dates by lying about his age, those dates are not going to end up the way he hopes they will. Right? But the second conclusion is the more useful and the more apposite for us this morning, and that is that Mr. Rattleband has a point. We live in a society, a culture, soaked, drenched, marinated in ageism ageism, discrimination and prejudice based on how old you are, on your chronological age. Ageism hits all of us, young and old, but it weighs more heavily on those of us in later life. Why? Because ageism has got tangled up with the cult of youth, the cult of youth, the idea that younger is always better, that aging is somehow a curse, a punishment, a disease even. We live in a culture where being older, can mean being written off everywhere from the boardroom to the bedroom. This toxic view of growing older, this poisonous idea that aging is one big downward spiral, is woven into our vernacular. It's built into the language we use every day. Think of the expressions we toss around in our lives when we we refer to aging. In fact, let's run a little experiment now. On the next slide, I'm going to put up a bunch of expressions that we use when we refer to aging, right? And what I want you guys, they're going to appear one by one. And what I want you guys to do is, as soon as you see an expression that you have either used yourself or heard someone else use in the last few days or week or whatever, I want you to throw your hand in the air, right? So we understand the ground rules? Here we go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of hands in the air, right? And it's not surprising, is it? Because this is the world that we live in now, a world where ageism gets a free pass. You know, if you think of other isms, other forms of discrimination, sexism, racism, you know, we see sexism, and usually these days we'll call it out, racism as well. But ageism, we just wave it right on through. Mark Zuckerberg told an audience in public a little while ago, young people are just smarter. And the world shrugged, you know, nobody called him out. Well, I'm here this morning to tell you that it's time to stop shrugging. Why? Because ageism hurts all of us in so many ways. For starters, these days we're living better for longer than ever before. But have we ever felt worse about growing older? The very idea of aging elicits fear, shame, guilt, disgust, and a lot of denial. If you type the words, I lie about my, into Google search, the number one answer that comes up is not my weight, my height, my income, it's not even how much porn I watch, although I'm guessing that's probably up there in the top five. It's my age. Ageism makes us feel so bad about growing older that we lie about how old we are. We lie on Tinder and at work, we lie to loved ones, and we lie to ourselves. Like a friend of mine who recently celebrated her 39th birthday for the fourth time. Ageism also pits the generations against each other. It drives a wedge between us, between boomers and millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, Gen Y, Y, at a time when we need to be coming together to tackle the epic challenges facing humanity, the bushfires being a current example. Ageism also harms us in ways that we don't even realize. Why? Because it works like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you feel ashamed, anxious, afraid of aging, you are going to age less well. Studies show that worshiping youth and denigrating aging makes you more likely to suffer physical and cognitive decline, to develop dementia, and even to die younger, up to seven and a half years younger. Ageism, in other words, buying into the cult of youth, is the ultimate act of self-harm. It also narrows our horizons. Think of how many roads are left untraveled, how many doors left unopened, because we pay heed to that little voice whispering in the back of our mind, maybe I'm too old for this. Now, I recognize that voice, I know it well, and the last time I heard it loud and clear like a clarion call was about four years ago at a hockey tournament in the north of England, a city called Gateshead. Now, I'm Canadian, So if you know anything about Canadians, you know that we say sorry a lot, we love maple syrup, and we love hockey, right? Hockey is our religion. And we have two versions of it. There's ice hockey, which probably you'll see, and there's also street hockey or ball hockey. Same sport, but you play Without ice, you play with shoes on a tarmac or a gym, and a ball, right? So in London, I play ball hockey these days, more than ice hockey. And I play for a team called the London Jets, and we're at the moment the national reigning champions in the ball hockey league. And four years ago, we were up near the top of the league as well. But at this tournament, we were playing in the quarterfinals, and we were locked in a stalemate with a team that we had annihilated the year before. And we just couldn't break through. It was 0-0. We were staring down the barrel of a, a penalty shootout, and I could feel the the nerves and the indignation coursing through my teammates. And then with about a minute left, I scored an amazing goal, a kind of highlight reel goal, the kind of goal that will be giving me goosebumps 25 years from now. And we won the game, so we were propelled into the semifinals. And as I came off the arena, you know, I was high-fiving and getting back-slapped, and people were calling me a legend and stuff. You know, I just felt, I was floating on air. I felt like a god, right? I felt like Wayne Gretzky, who's the kind of ultimate Canadian hockey icon. Uh, the Australian equivalent would be, let's put it this way, I felt like I was swaggering off the pitch, feeling like Shane Warren, Yeah? You know? Without the gambling and drugs problems, obviously. Um, and, so, and the swagger continued until I got into the communal dressing room where all the players from, there were about 250 players at this tournament, were hanging out and eating bananas and changing their equipment and checking their email. And one of the organizers of the tournament was flicking through player profiles on his iPad. And someone said to him, who's the youngest player here? And he looked through and he said, it's Jimmy, it a 16-year-old kid who had his birthday and qualified for the tournament as a 16-year-old three days before. And then someone else said, who's the oldest player? And he flicked through for a bit and then he paused. He pointed at me and he said, Carl, mate, you're the oldest player here. And it was like, I don't know, I feel a chill even just saying it. It was like getting what we call cross-checked in the face. It was like a ton of bricks landing on me. And and it's odd because I mean, I knew I was one of the oldest, right? I'm not deluded or blind. But somehow being the oldest just rocked me to the core. In the blink of an eye, I went from goal scorer to granddad. And all of these questions began crowding in. I began asking myself, well... Do I look out of place here? Are people laughing at me behind my back? Should I be taking up a more age-appropriate pastime, like bingo? And I'm not here to badmouth bingo, right? I like a good game of bingo as much as the next person, but I don't love bingo, not yet anyway, and I love hockey. And yet somehow in that moment, my age, my chronological age, had taken on this horrific power over me. It had made me feel that I didn't deserve to do the thing that I loved, the thing that I was doing well, simply because I was old. And I came away from that tournament sh- t- trembling, really. It would, and and, and I have discovered in my life that when I have an existential crisis like that, my solution is always the same. I end up writing a book. Yeah. So I spent the next couple of years digging into the science on aging, trying to understand where we are with it on, in a scientific point of view, but also culturally, I traveled around the world. And I came back with my new book, but I came back really with good news. And that is that ageism is not... Invincible. It's not a permanent or inevitable part of being human. Attitudes to aging shift and evolve over time. You know, we embraced the cult of youth in the 1960s. That means we can choose to unembrace it today. And there are two very good reasons to believe that we can do that and that we will do it. That we can redefine aging for the 21st century. The first reason, is that many of the stereotypes that we all carry around in a rucksack on our back about growing older are actually flat out wrong. Spoiler alert, it's not all downhill from 35. And the second reason is that the world is changing in ways that favor aging, that make it easier to grow older. It has never been a better time in human history to age. You know, and that's gonna make, for everyone in this room, it's gonna make it easier not only to age better, but to feel better about aging and the two things go hand-in-hand, they're two sides of the same coin. Let's look at some of those stereotypes first to begin with, right? Uh, Stereotype number one, maybe the most common about aging, that later life is depressing. Think of the words we use to describe older people, right? Sad, uh, cranky, crotchety, grumpy. Wrong. Human beings follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve, meaning we start high in childhood, we fall steadily till we bottom out in middle age, and then we bounce right back up again. Around the world, the adult age group that reports the highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness are the over-55s. You know, that means that I'm on the upswing. Where are you guys on the curve? Pete Townsend is a perfect example of this U-curve, U-shaped curve in action. Back in 1965, when he was about 20 years old, he penned one of the most ageist lines in the pop music canon. Maybe you remember it, you know, from The Who, My Generation. I'll play it back for you. <laughs> kids. about my Hope I die before
0: I get
1: old. About my hope I die, hope I die before I get old, yeah? That's the cult of youth in a nutshell. <laughs> that is it in its distilled form. What happened to Pete Townsend in his 60s, he turned around and said, you know what, I'm a whole lot happier now than I was back when I wrote those words. Scientists have even spotted a similar U-shaped curve in chimpanzees, orangutans, and bonobos, which suggests that a, a happiness boost in later life may even be coded into our primate genes. And one reason for that happiness surge in our later years, I think, is that as we get older, we become less beholden to other people's opinions, less shackled by their expectations, we feel less obliged to tiptoe around their judgments. Ann Landers, the legendary agony ant in the United States, once said, at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. And at 60, we realize they were never thinking about us at all. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think gets at that sense of, what would you call it, maybe lightness or freedom? that comes upon us in the second half of our lives. We begin to feel more comfortable in our own skins, more at ease with ourselves and our place in the world. We build that confidence that allows us to be honest about who we are. We start to let things go, to streamline, to just drop stuff that doesn't light us up anymore and focus on the stuff that really does make our hearts and our spirits sing. To paraphrase Jim quick from yesterday, one of the benefits I think of growing older and feeling you're able to focus on what works for you and not worry about other people, is you are able to keep the most important thing the most important thing. It gets easier. And that's one of the ingredients on the recipe for happiness, without a doubt. Stereotype number two. older, Younger people are um, more creative, right? Creativity belongs to the young. Again, wide of the mark. Human beings can be immensely creative at any age, and some forms of creativity actually depend on two things that only aging can confer, time and experience. Which is why history is studded with examples of people doing triumphantly creative work in later life, from Michelangelo to Matisse, from Beethoven to Bach. Louise Bourgeois came up with her iconic giant spiders in her 80s. or look at the turner prize anybody know who the turner prize in the uk it's very, it's the most famous uh, art prize in britain and it's given out every year to an artist for creative breakthrough work right and it, it often stirs up tabloid headlines because a lot of the work is off the wall and often a bit risque right this was a recent entry and and when i first saw this 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 contestant's work i thought it was a few years ago and i thought wow you know art goes to some funny places but since jim's Session yesterday now I look at this and I think dark chocolate, but you know anyway uh, <laughs> We're not gonna go down that road <laughs> Just, not, not on this talk anyway back to the Turner Prize in 2017 The Turner Prize had a rethink because throughout its history it had an age cap you had to be 50 years old or younger To be considered for the Turner Prize why well the thinking was obvious, right? It was cult of you thinking it was over 50 you're you're past it right you're you're over the hill all the creative fireworks happened under 50. In 2017, they abolished the age cap. Why? Because in the words of the chair, artists can experience a breakthrough in their work at any age. At any age. Three little words to torpedo the canard that creativity belongs to the young. Three little words to lift the spirits of anybody at any age being worried about being over the hill. Who won the Turner Prize in 2017? Lubaina Hymed, a 66-year-old visual artist. And it's not just in the arts where that creative flame can carry on burning, where creativity can carry on blossoming and flourishing right up to the end. The same thing is happening in the sciences, where scientists and mathematicians are hitting their creative peak, their innovative home runs, later and later in life. Uh, John Goodenough is a standout example. Back in the late 40s, he decided he wanted to study physics. So he went to the University of Chicago, and he was a little, a little older, he was 23 years old at the time when he signed up. They took him in to the program, but one of his professors told him on, the, on day one, they said, you know, it's great that you're here to study physics, but you're actually already too old to make a mark in your profession. Right? The traditional idea being that physics, maths, these are young man's or young person's games, generally young man's games, right? And good enough carried on studying, and it turned out that that prediction was hogwash. Thirty years later, He was part of the team that invented the rechargeable lithium-ion battery. Today, at the age of 97, he is leading a team at the University of Texas, Austin, that is moving battery technology to the next level. Last year, he became the oldest person ever to win a Nobel Prize. Maya Angelou was right, the writer, when she said, you cannot use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. Stereotype number three, older people, Are less productive you know getting aging makes us less useful in the workplace just look at what happens to people at work as they get past a certain age barrier right you you get pushed towards the exit ramp before anyone else you're the first out the door when there's a a re-engineering or a downsizing you're kept away from exciting new projects especially those that involve technology or if you do happen to get an interview and you're a little a little older you're told well you're too big for this role you're overqualified right which is just code for, we want somebody younger than you. That dreadful phrase that floats around in the workplace today, finished at 40, yeah? Again, this kind of thinking is folly on an industrial scale. Why? Because productivity actually rises as we age in jobs that rely on social acumen, as more and more do these days. Why? Because our social skills tend to get better as we get older. We also get better at seeing the big picture at weighing multiple viewpoints, and at spotting those patterns and details that allow us to unlock solutions to difficult, tangled problems. That's why companies that run suggestion boxes or or their digital equivalent report that more good ideas come from older staff and that the best ideas usually come from the over-55s. It's also why, when Harvard University researchers raked through all of the longitudinal studies looking at workplace performance and they crunched the numbers and the data, they concluded that the capacity, the skill, the ability to grasp how the world works, to understand why and how things fit together, that skill that allows you to, to, to soar in the workplace, that faculty, that ability only fully matures around the age of 50. So, who's smarter now? Mark Zuckerberg. Stereotype number four entrepreneurship belongs to the young, right? We turn on the TV and what do we see? We see young guns strutting and preening on the apprentice. But if you look at the real world out there, it's their parents and grandparents who are smashing it in startup land. A study recently released looking at all new companies started up, all new founded companies in the United States, all of them, more than a million, over seven-year period came to a conclusion that makes a complete mockery of this idea that entrepreneurship is the monopoly of the young. Sure, there are Mark Zuckerbergs out there, right? There are 20-somethings, we all read about them all the time, don't we, who set up unicorns. But that doesn't make them the norm. They get a lot of media attention, they make a lot of noise on social media, but they're not the norm. They're actually the outliers. Because the truth is that you're more likely to succeed setting up a business in middle age or beyond, right? in middle age or beyond. Finished at 40? Give me a break, phooey! Many of us are just getting started at 40. Carl Jung, the psychotherapist, uh, had some wild ideas about UFOs and sort of some crazy stuff, but he really hit the nail on the head when he talked about aging. He said, you know, for many of us, life really only starts, gets going at 40, because all that stuff going on in the lead-up For many of us, it's just research. We're just laying the foundations for that launch pad that comes in the second half, in the second part of our lives. Stereotype number five, older people can't learn new things. We, We all know that expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, yeah? Well, guess what? That's not even true of dogs, yeah? And it's certainly not true of human beings. We could go on vocabulary, general knowledge, expertise, these things go on expanding to the very end of our lives. And even if along the way it takes us a little longer to learn new things in unfamiliar domains, we can still do it. And often we'll do it with more self-awareness, more nuance, more depth, more perspective, because of the years that we built up along the way. You know, Julia Child didn't learn to cook till she was nearly 40 and then became one of the most famous chefs in American history. Vera Wang reinvented herself as a fashion designer in her 40s. At this very moment, on an online platform called Code Academy, 1.2 million over 55s are learning to computer code. My own mother, who is a 78-year-old dynamo, gives private French lessons in her spare time. Her star pupil at the moment is a healthcare worker in his mid-60s who is soaking up French grammar and French vocabulary like a sponge. So there there you have five stereotypes about growing older, right? All of them grim, all of them widespread, and all of them wrong. The bottom line is that the idea that everything gets worse as we get older is weapons-grade nonsense. Of course, there are downsides to aging. You know, we all know that. I can't run or skate as fast as I could in my 20s. I need glasses now to read small print, and I don't have as much hair as I did 10 years ago. But that's not the whole story, not by a long shot. Because what you realize when you stop obsessing about the downsides of aging is that as you grow older, many things actually stay the same, and some even get better. The truth is that every age has It's pros and cons, and every age can be magnificent, but only if we embrace it, only if we embrace the present without pining for the past or shrinking from the future. Only, in other words, if we approach aging or living, because they're two parts of the same equation. They're two ways of saying the same thing. Only if we approach aging, living with a bold spirit, as a a process of opening doors instead of closing them. And what I'm talking about here is creating a whole new mindset when we think about ageing, whatever age we are, to think about ageing boldly, growing bolder as we grow older. And in order to do that and to do it right, we have to do it right across our lives, in every, every corner and every aspect of, of how we are in the world. And that's where I think Sam's model uh, comes in very handy, because it gives us a, a very useful framework for thinking about how we approach life at different stages. So where, whatever it is, whether it's you know, wealth, charity, work, friendships, love, learning, um, health, exercise, all of that stuff, whatever age you are, whatever stage of life you are, you need to arrive at each of those baskets thinking, okay, at this moment in my life, I either have to or want to let some things go. And that's okay, because that's life. But it's only really going to be okay if at the same time you find new things. You look for new ways, fresh ways of being and doing and, f- and, and evolving yourself. It's about evolving, always looking to reinvent yourself at any stage, whether in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or 80s. These days, I often think about aging or living as a little bit like a video game, right? which, which shoots down the narrative that floats around in our culture so much of aging as a spiral downward. Somehow we get to a peak, and then it's, everything is downhill. If you think of it as like, more like a video game, right? what happens in a video game? You've got levels. So at the end of each level, it's a triumph, right? You even get a little dopamine squirt. You get to the end of level 25, you look back, you think, oh, that was pretty, now I've got 26 to look forward to. You know, what what kind of new treasure am I going to find? What kind of new adventures, new relationships am I going to form? That's what bold aging, aging boldly, is all about. Finding those new things and always being open to the idea of opening doors and staying away from the one of closing. Always looking to find that higher branch, if you like. What I'm saying here, essentially, is that we need now to forge a whole new narrative around aging, to create, to, using Guy's language, to edit the story that we've all been carrying around in our heads about, about growing older and aging, to recast that story and come up with a better ending. We need a story, a narrative that is richer, more nuanced, more honest, you know, taking account of the downsides, but also more optimistic. And there are many reasons for optimism, many. One is that these days we now have the clearest recipe yet for aging well, right? Through the science, all the stuff we need. We know we have a list of, to do, of things to do, levers to pull that we can all pull, you can all pull in your lives in order to, to live and age better and more boldly. Some of them have already come up in this conference so far. You know, diet, of course, we know, eating well, uh, staying away from smoking, drinking in moderation, exercise, getting close to being a magic bullet, for aging well, not just for keeping us physically fit and sharp, but also cognitively switched on, robust, vital. Social bonds, we know that having a social network, uh, having strong social relationships, whether that's family, uh, neighbors, colleagues, or friends, right? That helps us to age well. Learning, as I said before, not only are we able to learn, but learning, the very act of learning, is good for us. I think Jim made reference to this as well. The the simple act of pushing yourself, making yourself sometimes a little uncomfortable as you struggle and strive to conquer a new idea or a new task or a new activity, that refreshes you, that recharges your battery and launches you into the next stage of your life uh, ready and and, and going. And then lastly, the idea of purpose, right? We know that having a purpose in your life, meaning something that puts fire in your belly, that gets you up in the morning, that makes you want to launch yourself the next day or the next week, that that also is one of the driving motors of aging well and aging boldly. And again, another silver lining. It seems to me that it gets easier as we get older to find our purpose. We can find our purpose at any age, right? And that purpose will evolve and change as we grow, probably. But it it is a little easier in later life. That's one of the bonuses of growing older because of all those things I talked about earlier. We have that confidence in ourselves, that self-knowledge. We're not hemmed in, imprisoned by other people's expectations. We're able to go out there and just do it, because it works for us, to let the stuff go that doesn't light us up and make the most important thing the most important thing. Another reason for optimism is medical science. You know, every day we're coming up with new techniques for dealing with the wear and tear on our bodies caused by aging. Um, Techniques for restoring hearing and eyesight, uh, for harnessing the brain these days, for controlling Computers and uh, even prosthetic limbs. This is a guy who last year, a quadriplegic, who walked for the first time in a suit, a kind of mechanical suit, powered solely by the thoughts emanating from his brain. I mean, it's science fiction stuff that's going to make aging so much better and so much easier for all of us. Or look at the way we're able to rebuild worn out joints now. Andy Murray, the tennis star Scotland, uh, is back playing and winning singles tennis matches at the top level of his sport playing on a hip, a metal hip, installed about a year ago. Another reason to feel that we are on the cusp of redefining and recasting, rebranding, if you like, aging for the 21st century is money, yeah? Because of a series of historical and economic intersection of factors, this generation of over-50s, over-55s just happens to be loaded, right? You know, and anyone under that age probably feels a little bit resentful of that. But it's a, it's a fact at the moment. And, and the, you know, the, the numbers jump out at us. This year, households headed by over 60s will spend 15 trillion American dollars worldwide. You know, 15 trillion US dollars around the planet. That is a mountain of cash. And like it or not, in our culture, money commands respect. Money bestows power. Money talks. And the culture is listening. Increasingly, it's making space for people in later life, for older people. You may have seen last year that the new Terminator film came out. See? Yeah. Sarah Connor is back, wielding a rocket launcher in her 60s. The demographic shift going on all around us is also playing into this new way of thinking about aging. Whenever you pick up the newspaper and hear about the aging population, it's always cast as bad news you know, the silver tsunami, we're all going to be surrounded by incontinent oldsters complaining about how bad life is now and how it was way better in the past. Actually, there's a whole other story to think about there, because as the, the planet fills up with people who, every day, more and more older people, there is strength in numbers, yeah? It's harder to dismiss and denigrate a growing chunk of the population, especially when so many of them are taking life by the scruff of the neck, they are redefining what growing older looks like. They're launching successful startups in their 50s. They're learning languages in their 60s. They're making political history in their 70s. They're running marathons in their 80s. They're making incredible documentaries and spearheading the fight against climate change in their 90s. They're falling in love and having great sex at all ages. And role models matter, because the more people we see trampling all over these downbeat, grim, Stereotypes about aging the easier it becomes for the rest of us to do the same and in this battle to recast Aging to 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 rewrite that story to edit that story in a hopeful way about growing older Social media is a powerful ally take Instagram Every day on Instagram millions of people around the world upload photos showing their version of being 30 something 40 something 50 something 60 70 80 90 something and guess what That version looks a whole lot different from the version that we've all inherited and bequeathed to us by the cult of youth. The old version being elasticated waistbands, bingo, rocking chairs, unhappy, just, you know, wasteland. What these people are showing, and what we're showing ourselves at the same time on social media, is that with a bold spirit and a little luck, any age, any age can be a time of discovery, Adventure, depth, sex, romance, meaning, joy, vigor. C.S. Lewis, the famous author, once said, you're never too old to uh, set a new goal or to dream a new dream. This is C.S. Lewis who, in his 50s, published the Chronicles of Narnia and then went on to find the love of his life. Now, he uttered those words about 70 years ago, but I think they're more relevant today than ever before. Because the tectonic plates are shifting in our culture, a seismic change is occurring all around us, in which chronological age, your birth date, is losing. At long last, it is losing its power to define and limit you. Now, chronological—that's not to say that chronological chronological age doesn't matter, right? I, I personally never use the expression "age is just a number," because the number does matter, right? No one is the same at 40 as they were at 20. No one's the same at 50 as they were at 30. That's always going to be the way it is, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what is changing is that that number, the number in your birth certificate, that number you carry around in your head, is losing that all-encompassing power to act like a straitjacket, to box you in, to push you into those stereotypes. That voice whispering, maybe you're too old for this, is starting to fade. Just look at Amazon and Netflix, two of the big behemoths of the global economy, both companies have stopped tracking and interacting with their users based on age, right? They just don't do it anymore. They do it now based on taste. What matters to Amazon is not whether you're 32 or 35. What matters to Amazon is what books you buy to send to your loved ones at Christmas. What matters to Am- what Netflix is not whether you're 43 or 51. What matters is whether you like Breaking Bad or whether you gave up on the crown halfway through. In other words, increasingly, what matters now is not when you were born, but the choices you make. What will define us now, and this is in all of our hands, what will define us increasingly now as we move through the 21st century is not how old we are, but the food we cook for the people we love, the books we read, The art that moves us to tears, the music that makes us want to get up and dance, the work we do, the causes we espouse, the travel that we do, the places we go, that's what's going to define us. And what that adds up to is an incredible explosion of freedom, right? It's taking off that huge yoke, those shackles of the cult of youth that ages and boxing us in throughout history and allowing us to be free to define who we will be at every stage of our lives. And I feel that freedom myself now in a way that I wouldn't even have imagined before. To me, my, my age really, in a lot of ways, no longer matters to me. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm 52, and I'm okay with that, right? I'm not only okay with it, I'm, I'm actually kind of proud that I've got where I've got and the things I've done, and I'm looking forward to, to 53 and, 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 and what's coming. And I, I feel this shift in my thinking of aging, particularly in hockey especially, because that's sort of where the whole existential crisis started and the whole sort of journey to rethinking aging for myself began. And there too, it's kind of night and day. There's a very clear before and after. I think that moment when I discovered I was the oldest player and it really shook me to the core, the reason that happened was that I had been a card-carrying ageist, right? I was a fully signed-up member of the cult of youth. And so I had just not thought about my age. I just didn't even want to confront it. And then all of a sudden, it was there in my face, and it, sh- it just shut me down. But now, having gone through a couple of years of research, rethinking all of this, I've come out the other side, you know, reborn, if you like, you know. When, when I go to, I still pl- I play hockey every Wednesday night, and I play in tournaments on the weekends. And when I play now, what matters is not how old I am. What matters is, you know, first of all, whether I can still take the hits, which I, I can for now. But, but more importantly than that, whether I could, you know, how well I play, or how much I help my, my team, how much fun I'm having. And I've decided that I'm going to make a little gesture, because I, we all need to take steps in our own lives and together to start challenging this cult of youth, to, to, to show that there are different ways to be in the world at different ages, and that we don't have to be defined by the numbers on our birth certificate. So my, my, my gesture for this year is, we, we have you know our team obviously has a jersey, right? And for, throughout my playing career in hockey, I've always had the number 10 on my back and arm, right? But this year, I, wrote, I sent an email to the uh, um, organizers of our league uh, because it's starting up again, and we need, I need a New Jersey. And I said, I'd like to do a little, make a little tweak to mine. I want a different number, but it's not quite a number. I want to make a statement with my number. I want to be, this year, I want to be 50-plus, yeah? As a kind of just way of saying, you know what? Here I am, I'm 50 plus, and what of it, right, you know? I'm not bothered by it, are, are you, you know? What does, it doesn't matter if I'm 50 plus, what matters is whether you can take the ball off me, right? Or whether you can stop me from scoring another highlight reel goal that takes my team into the semifinals. So, to wind down, I'd like to give you all some ideas for things that we can, everyone in this room, we can all do, together and on our own, to join this battle, this crusade, to redefine and relaunch, reboot, Aging for the 21st century, to find that bold spirit in in each of us. The first thing, these are collective ideas, now things that we need to do together, the first thing is is, is laws, right? We need new laws out there to pass them, to outlaw discrimination and prejudice, ageism based on on age, and to enforce the ones that are already on the statute books, because they are legion, but we just don't put them into practice, right? We also need to launch a big public awareness campaign, that will make aging socially unacceptable, uh, something shameful, something no one wants to be associated with. And we need to bring the generations back together again. Nothing shoots down stereotypes better than getting to know the people being stereotyped, right? And I found this in my own life that I realized actually as I started digging into aging and my own experience of it, I realized that I didn't really have any older friends at all. I mean, my, my friends were either, you know, my age or a couple of years older, or they were much younger from, from my hockey team. But I had nothing, nobody older. But now, through my, you know, shift and change, I've got, a, I've got friends now. People have real, really genuine friends who are much older than me. I've got one friend who's uh, 12 years older, and he recently went, he, he had his prostate taken out, right? So it's a reminder that, you know, there can be dark things ahead. But a week later, he was captaining his five-a-side football team, his soccer team, right, to winning a tournament. So it's, it's kind of what do you do with those facts? Where do you go with them? Coming back to what we were hearing yesterday about, from Guy about re, re-editing, reframing the facts of your life in a way that launches you forward in a hopeful and, and bold way. Lastly, what can you all do personally? When you finish this conference and you've had the boat party and who knows, maybe some skinny dipping, you go back into your, your lives, what can you all do to... Find that bold place inside you and and join this battle. Well, the first thing, I'll I'll give you three three, um, suggestions. The first is to join some kind of social group, some network or tribe, you know, the higher academy is a good, higher branch is a good example. A group that has ideally a range of ages. So you get that experience that you can swap insights and ideas. And it also gives you that sense, and I have found this having older friends now, that life is a long arc with ups and downs, but it's not this kind of spiral downwards, and that there are way, things you can do at every stage to make it better, to make it wonderful, to make it luminous, right? To make it bold and beautiful. The second suggestion I'd make to you is to, is to check your language. You know, let's stop using those phrases uh, and, 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 and that, that we hear all, all around us. Uh, because every time we use them, the ageist phrases, the ones that reinforce this idea that aging is failure, that aging sucks, uh, that aging is all about decline. Every time we use phrases like that, we reinforce that myth, that, that lie. And then last, but not least, let's be honest, right? Let's, let's stop lying about how old we are. Because when we lie about our age, we give that number a power over us that it doesn't deserve. We lock ourselves into those tired old stereotypes about growing older. But when we're honest about our age, when we own it, then we free ourselves up to define what our life will look like at any stage. We also free ourselves up to enjoy our birthdays, to celebrate them instead of mourn them. So a final thought, my tip for the day, if you like. Whatever age you are, 25, 35, 45, 55, whatever, own it, you know, be honest about it, own your age, and then go out there and show the world and yourself what you can do. Which, as it happens, is pretty much the advice that the judge in that courthouse in the Netherlands gave to Emil Rattleband when he turned down his request to change his official birth date. He said, Mr. Rattleband, uh, this is not going to happen, right? You're a 69-year-old man, You're gonna carry on being a 69-year-old man on paper, and that's not the end of the world, right? You've got so much to offer. You should be proud of those 69 years. If you're proud and open and honest about it, your life will work out better for you. And maybe even on Tinder. Thank you very much. We have... um, Do we have... We've got... Yeah, we've got... um, Six minutes, if anybody has a qu- Or five minutes, right? Does anybody have a question or a, or a thought or a? There's my hand up right away there. Go for it.
2: Thanks, Kyle. Um, I am a great believer in everything you said, and I stand to benefit from it. I'm at that age. Um, what I find hard to believe, though, is that all these companies are pushing older people out at, the, at a dollar cost to them. Um, I just find it hard to believe that it would actually not, not be wise to that. If it's costing them money, they surely would be...
1: Yeah, it, it is astonishing to see it happening, but it's been, it's been happening for ages, so in, in that sense it's not surprising. But yeah, when you look at the numbers and what they're throwing out the window by playing into that kind of cult of youth idea, I mean, they're, sh- they're shooting themselves in the foot. It's bad for the bottom line. But the, the, the upside is that many companies now around the world are starting to wake up to the, the, the silliness of doing that. So for the last few years in the corporate world, diversity has been a big word, right? That everybody's about diversity. But that has tended to be you know, gender, uh, you know, um, sexual preference, racial and ethnic. There hasn't been a whole, but more and more you're seeing now companies when they under the umbrella of diversity, uh, they're bringing age into the equation, more and more. And I've seen that, my book has been out now for a year and I've seen so many more examples I would love to have included that are coming out as companies are saying, you know what, the world is changing around us. We're looking at a future where we are probably going to have five generations in the workplace. How can we channel that? You know, how can we make the most of each strengths and weaknesses of each generation? How can we bring them together? And the data is so clear on this. The, the studies, are, they're just you know, pretty much one-sided, that it's in the interest of the company to keep those older workers on. You know, one example being that teams of mixed age are, you know, make fewer mistakes, are more efficient, more productive, more, you know, they're just better teams, right? And so you're, you are seeing more and more examples. So it's important not to lose heart, because I think this is a super tanker we're trying to turn around. But because of some of those reasons I was mentioning, you know, it, this is something that everybody will be, will benefit from, right? This is, I, in some ways, I feel this is when we talk about fighting ageism. In some ways, it's maybe harder because we're, you know, we're hardwired to, you know, love the fertility of youth and all that sort of stuff. But at the same, on the flip side, the upside, I think it could even be easier than tackling, say, racism or sexism, because we are all victims of ageism, right? You know, it's not the same with racism. A a white supremacist is never going to be a black person, right? And and a male chauvinist pig is very unlikely to morph into a woman. But whatever age you are, you're going to be older. You know, you're already older than you were at the beginning of this conference, right? Uh, So we're all heading down that track. So it's in all of our interests to get on board with this and to make the world a better place, not just in the workplace, but for everybody of all ages. And I, I see so many examples of this happening now that I feel, I feel we will get there. We will get there. Uh, you, I didn't see who went up first. There, so you... Uh, I think possibly... Yeah. Um,
2: a couple of points that you didn't really touch on. Um, two things. One of them, culturally, and second one, uh, the cosmetic industry. Sure. Um, when I was 22, I moved to Italy. I learned a language, and I worked in... Uh, as a designer in Milan, and I realised I was there going, oh, my God, why are people not grabbing onto me? I'm 22. But I was in a generation where 40 and 50 was appreciated because they're Mm. designers that had worked their time and had... You know, those young people were not appreciated, whereas in Australia, I was like, in Australia, they grab onto youth. And here, they're not interested in youth. They're Mm -hmm. interested in the time that people have put in to get to that point. So I think culturally in Anglo-Saxon worlds, yeah. that's what we have. And then equally the cosmetic industry, if you go to Italy, which I spent a lot of time in, or in France, or in Greece, or in Spain, or anywhere where older women are appreciated, they're appreciated for their lines, they're appreciative for their size, they're appreciated for their womanly nature, whereas here we're encouraged... Increasingly, to get injections, to change mm. the way we look, to try and look like we're 22, and we're not.
1: When were you in, in that part of the world?
2: I lived there from 22 to 29, I'm so uh, 96 to 2002. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I live in Europe, right? I live in London, so I spend a lot of time, and I speak those languages, do a lot of time in yeah. those countries, and it's changed a lot, right? Oh, no, I go
2: back. Okay, you go, go back, back yeah. Constantly. I
1: mean, it's, it seems to me, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Spain recently doing some TV work. And I mean, I didn't feel that different, you know, the whole kind of pressure on women. Um, I, I do agree that there's a kind of, there is a kind of cultural inheritance that you kind of respect older the people, maybe slightly more than the Anglo-Saxon model. But what I found as I traveled around the world was I expected when I set off on my journey that I was gonna find, you know, really big differences between cultures. And, and one of the ones I thought would be most acute would be with the Far East. I think we often think of, you know, Eastern cultures, Pacific Rim, Asian cultures as being, again, having, Older people on a pedestal and people looking forward to getting older, but that's just not what's happening anymore, right? I mean the, that cult of youth is just I think has really gone been weaponized and gone global social media being part of the problem um, And you find that everywhere so two just two quick examples from the Far East uh, South Korea now has the highest level of cosmetic surgery spending in the world, right And those people, those South Koreans are not going to the surgeon to look older, yeah? They're going there to look younger. So they've, you know, and then if you go to Japan, I don't know if you saw the the news story, it was about a few months ago, that older Japanese people now are committing deliberate felonies, right? So they're deliberate crimes, they're going in shoplifting deliberately and to get caught because they're so lonely, uh, the families are not looking after them anymore, they just want to go to prison to be around other people, right? So I think a lot of the stories that we we think of in in the Anglo-Saxon world that other cultures have got it right, it's a bit more complicated, I would say, than that. But there, there, are, there are strands of what you say, and I, that's something I touch on in the book, which, of course, in a book you've got more space to breathe, right, and more, more, more room to, to play around with. I think you are next one.
0: Um, so I don't know how to frame this very well, but I read that a um, mortal people will be possible by 2050, which is not dying from old age. Mm. I guess, what do you think about that? Do you think that's ageism or...? Is that like, what? Yeah, I know, I've got to,
1: I mean, I, you know, I think there's a lot of utopianism spoken in Silicon Valley, there's this whole, you know, billions of dollars are being pumped into ending aging, stopping aging, killing, you know, and I, I have serious doubts about whether we'll get there. I don't rule it out, you know, we may well get there. Um, whether it's ageist or, yeah, yeah, I it feel it's, a lot of it's still, it's much more sci-fi, science fiction than science yet. Um, it, you know, really we haven't worked out at all how to stop aging, you know. The, you know, we, we can, all the things I was talking about and that we all know, we can age better and that's kind of the way I think it's better to frame it, rather than thinking I'm going to stop aging or I'm going to carry on being, you know, young, you, because that then plays into that narrative that becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy I was talking about. So if you, you know, the studies show really clearly, that, really very clearly, that if you have a toxic view of aging, if you're appalled by it and afraid of it, you're actually going to age less well. So, in some ways, I suppose the the, the manic pursuit of ending aging probably has an ageist undertow to it. Um, but I wouldn't want to stop it. I think you know because I think a lot of useful side technologies will spin off it. You know, things with deal, because some of the, that research will lead to ways of dealing with you know joints and stuff. So, so I think it's that's a good thing. I think we're are we okay for time? One more? Sure.
2: Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, it was amazing. <laughs> um, on the other side of 50, um, I can...
1: I'm glad you didn't say the wrong side.
2: Uh, no, 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 On the better side. Um, there's a lot of things I learned about um, what not to do in order to um, not age too quickly in terms of physical um, capacity and health and so on. Um, can you speak a little bit about how the next generation can cope with stress and burnout Mm -hmm. and all of that that tends to age us and give us a sense of possibly feeling like we can't recover. So,
1: Thanks. Sure. Well, before my new book, Boulder, I, you know, you may have saw in the thing, my whole thing has been slow, right? You know, the whole kind of all about slowing down, so I think if I have to give you a short I won't say a fast answer, but a, a brief answer to that question, I would say, slow down, right? I mean, that, and, and, and that will take various forms. It'll lead to how we forge new protocols and social norms around technology, you know, switching off, not, you know, we heard some of these things from the stage already about how we use our gadgets, um, simply, you know, doing less, right? And part of the problem now is the whole world is this enormous smorgasbord of things to consume and experience and eat and buy. And it's a very, it's a, the natural human instinct is to want to have it all. having it all is just a recipe for hurrying it all. So, you know, less is more. So whatever it is, whether the workplace or anything, just, you know, streamline, focus on doing fewer things. I think we had, um, I mean, Tom led an amazing session with uh, meditation. I think bringing back some of those um, ancient practices of just simply being in tune with the body and the rhythms and natural rhythms of the body. I think getting more in touch with nature. I mean, we know that nature, has a, a, a soothing and healing effect on the human animal. So, I mean, there's a long, long list of things to do. But, uh, and I do think this, and I'm, not, I'm a natural-born optimist, I think this new generation coming up is, is all over this, right? I mean, I've got kids myself, and you see that they're having these conversations about how to... Um, there's just one quick example from technology. There's this new... Um, social ritual called stacking, which I don't know if it's riffed in Sydney yet, but you see it in London a lot when um, young kids go out for a coffee or something, they all sit around the table and pile up their phones in a stack in the middle, and whoever grabs the phone first to look at Instagram or Snapchat pays the bill for everybody else, yeah? And it's just a nifty way of saying, we have this moment here together, we'll never have this moment again. Why spoil it Why, by trying to be in four other moments at the same time, yeah? And that, that is not a, a ritual that's been imposed by burned out baby boomers who didn't grow up with screens. That is coming up from the digital natives who are saying, whoa, okay, we love a bit of Snapchat, you know, a bit of TikTok is great fun, but you know, basta, right? Enough of this, right? We need to have some lines, some, some boundaries. So, you know, it, it, it is changing, but there's, there's way more, much more to be done. Companies need to change, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, if just so people here, you were saying you're worried that companies are pushing, the, the, well, not just the next generation, everybody to go, yeah. Yeah, no, of course, the corporate world is, a, is it important not to crack and a difficult one, but, but again, I, I see so many examples of companies that whether they're moving to a four-day week or changing, you know, giving staff the right and, in fact, it, it, forcing them to switch off email in the evenings. You know, some more of these things are coming on stream and, and we will, I, I think we will turn this around. It's, uh, but we're we're in the transitional moment where there are casualties, there's no doubt. Right. Okay, thank you very much. (laughs)